Stay hungry, stay foolish. We all want to discover our hidden talents and make an impact. Our guest, an ex-footballer and performance specialist, quit his job and for six intense months lived with the world's best athletes in an attempt to answer this question. Why have the best middle distance runners grown up in the same Ethiopian village? Why are the leading female golfers from South Africa? How did one athletic club in Kingston, Jamaica succeed in producing so many world-class sprinters? He presents his surprising conclusions and seven lessons on how anyone or any business, organization or team can defy the many misconceptions of high performance and learn to build their own gold mine of real talent. This book is not about sport, it's about identifying and nurturing talent. In a knowledge economy, talent is a competitive advantage, but business leaders and coaches alike don't often know how to identify talent, even when it's right in front of them. We welcome author of The Goldmine Effect, Rasmus Ankrensen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to have you on the show, man. I thought we'd start, Rasmus, with the story of Simon Cager. This incident is more responsible for the birth of this book than any of your other experiences. It happened quite a few years back when I was a young, aspiring football coach, and I helped build one of the first football academies in Scandinavia. When we built the academy, we had this problem that we couldn't really attract the best talent. When everyone else had made their pick, we had to take who was left. That first season, after having founded the academy, we recruited 16 players, and the last player that year was this young boy called Simon. He was 15 at the time. We really only recruited him for three reasons. First, we couldn't get anyone better. And secondly, he lived very close to the training ground, so it was convenient for him to get to practice. And the third reason was that his father worked as a kid man at the academy. He did a really good job, so we really wanted to keep him. So we recruited his son. We sold the boy when he was 18, three years later, for four million pounds. He was named as the football of the year in Denmark, as the youngest ever. and. Today, he's the captain of the national team and really a very established top player in Europe. His name is Simon Kerr. The twist to this story is that when he was 15, all the coaches in the academy, including myself, we did this exercise where each of us wrote down on a piece of paper the names of the five players we thought would be the best five years into the future. So we did that. We put all the papers in into an envelope, and then we didn't look at it for the next five years. And Five years later, we reopened it, and to everyone's surprise, I mean, uh, no one had Simon among the five. And and really, we, we we were not just amateurs. We were highly skilled and highly educated coaches. We all had the finest coaching certificate you can have in Europe, and still no one had him among the five. I mean, the guy, number one on my list, he doesn't even play football. He runs a pizza place in the southern Denmark. So... It kind of made me think a lot. What is talent? How do you identify talent? How do you grow talent? These questions that are really relevant to anyone who runs an organization. I decided to try and study this. And I thought what's more interesting than trying to go into some of these environments that cracked the code and managed to produce one world-class performer after the other. This concept of overlooking talent isn't unique. You talk about, for example, Ronaldo. So this happened with Ronaldo in his early days where clubs wouldn't even pay his bus fare as payment. He had to go looking for clubs. So this wasn't unique to your scenario. You look into sports, you look to music, you look to business, you will find example after example. I mean, everyone has their own 
Simon Care version, right? Everyone have their own Simon Care problem because you know it's very difficult when you're trying to spot talent, you're trying to predict the future, and it's it's very difficult. I just think we make some really common mistakes when we try and go and look for talent that makes us do these kind of mistakes. But I would also say that it's still going to be difficult. If you ask me with what I know today, would I have put Simon K on my list? I like to think I'll have a have had a better chance spotting him, but I'm not sure because talent ID, in my opinion, is not about getting it right all the time because nobody does. It's more about being less and less wrong. And I think there are ways to get better at being less wrong. Here you talk about the concept of capitalization, which I loved. And it's the brilliant American scientist, James Flynn, that developed the concept of capitalization, which describes the percentage of human potential in a given community that's successfully unlocked. And you went around these gold mines around the world looking at this and why, and where were all the ingredients. And the first expedition you started was to Kenya. It'd be great to hear about that story. Capitalization is just a way of measuring or indicating how effectively a society or a community or a company, for that sake, capitalize on the potential that exists. We see these clusters of world-class performers, like why is there a village in Kenya that produce a big proportion of the best marathon runners in the world? Why is there an athletic club in Jamaica that produce the best sprinters? Why do uh, South Korea produce all these top female golfers? I mean, the immediate conclusion we tend to jump to is that there must be something in the water in these places. It's about super genetics. I'm not saying that genetics don't matter. I just say that there's very weak scientific evidence that there is a, like a race-linked genetic advantage. And what I think people overlook often is all these other capitalization factors. So, for example, this particular place in Kenya has a very high capitalization rate of long-distance runners which means that almost everyone who can become a world-class marathon runner do become a world-class marathoner. The same thing in Jamaica. Everyone who can become a, a top sprinter become a top sprinter because there is a culture that drags people into this activity and it becomes almost part of the, the local and even the national identity. People often say, like, why is there no Usain Bolt in the UK, for example? And I said, well, there is. He's just a football player because the culture is about football. So the best, the fastest people, they don't become sprinters here. They become football players. I mean, the fastest 100-meter runner in the UK, Adam Gimilly, he was a reject from the Chelsea Foot Football Academy. So if Usain Bolt had been born in the United States, I don't think he would have been a sprinter. He'd been a wide receiver in American football and maybe a basketball player. It's a lot about culture. What is it that the best athletes end up doing? And these places kind of have a system that capitalizes really, really well on a certain type of talent. You give the brilliant example in the book here of Russia and tennis because of Boris Yeltsin and also his favoritism towards the game of tennis. Often there is a local or a national culture that comes from somewhere. In some cases, it'd be created politically, politician puts a big emphasis and therefore resources on a discipline that they attach to national pride, for example. Whereas, for example, in Jamaica, I mean, there's a, there's a huge um, event every year called Champs, which is the, the national high school championships. You don't really understand how big that is before you try to attend one of those championships. It is the main entertainment event in Jamaica. The, the athletes often said that 
when you competed at the champs, then competing at the Olympics is just another day at the office. Sprinting is such a big part of the culture. It's almost like a virus. And that means that the people who can become good sprinters, they actually become good sprinters. And that's what I always say to people who want to create a gold mine is like, you got to start creating that virus because it's, it's almost a way of naturally recruiting the best athletes. You know, you got, you got to make this the coolest thing to do. That's a really important point. You almost have these change makers that influence that. And in Jamaica, one of them was Steve Francis. And I pulled a quote that I absolutely love from the book, from your conversations with him. It isn't difficult to identify talent like Usain Bolt. Anybody could see that he had a huge potential when he was 16. But the real challenge is to identify potential in something currently ordinary that hasn't flourished yet. I thought that absolutely nailed the spirit of the book. One of his principles is like what you see is not necessarily what you get. So when we look at talent, we tend to just look at what we see and then we assume that that's probably got what we're going to see in the future as well. So Stephen Francis has this great example, I think, where he says that if you have a sprinter that runs 10.2 under 100 meters and you have one running 10.6, who would you take? And most people would take the 10.2 guy because he's the fastest and therefore they assume he'd be automatically the most talented. But what if the 10-2 guy had the best coaches, had the best training environments, the most opportunities, the most practice hours, where the 10-6 guy, he really just trained on his own, never in a structured way. So understanding that piece of context means that a raw 10-6 can suddenly be better than a trained 10.2, especially in terms of potential. So that's his whole thinking, like that to evaluate potential you got to understand the context or the underlying reasons for the current performance. And I've had a lot of conversation with like business leaders about how this idea can be taken into an organization. And I've often asked them, like, if you were going to hire a salesperson, would you take the guy from Apple or would you take the guy from Microsoft? And then most guys tend to go for the Apple guy because best results, you know, work for the most successful companies. And then I'm saying, hey, yeah, maybe, but you also got to take into consideration that that Apple guy is selling a product people are willing to lie and sleep in the street for just to get into the shop to buy. So understand that that piece of content means that maybe a good result in Apple actually indicate less potential than an okay result for a salesperson in Microsoft. If you had a hotel and you wanted to get a great service employee on board, where would you go and look? Most people would go and look at the best hotels in town and try and recruit the best guys from there, which is just looking at what you see and trying to get that. Whereas you could also argue that you should go to the place where it's most difficult to demonstrate the skill you're looking for. You should go to a gas station, really, because if you can deliver outstanding service at a gas station, you can probably do that in in the hotel as well. That is basically what Stephen Francis is saying, that what you see is not what you get you got to look into the context of the performance if you want to be able to spot future potential. So here, Rasmus, you talk about a great quote from Richard Fairbank, Capital One CEO, and he said, at most companies, people spend 2% of their time recruiting and 75% managing recruiting mistakes. And that absolutely brings this to life in companies that we don't spend time identifying talent, either from the outside or growing it from the inside. 
it has huge costs to any company that you fail to recruit the right talent and and often you end up suffering on that for a long time i mean lo- lo- lots of companies they talk about values and spend a lot of time on okay this is going to be the values this is how we're going to collaborate this is what we're going to stand for whereas i think a lot you know a lot of value work in companies is actually recruitment because you got to hire people with the right values with the right attitude with the right mentality and then you don't have to talk too much about the values, how we're going to collaborate, et cetera, et cetera. I think Richard Fairbank's quote really nails that we got to take recruitment more seriously. And there's a lot of talent we overlook. We just look at what we see. We don't look beyond what we see. You introduced a great concept that I loved, which is the concept of high performance blindness. And here it's not about the performance, but it's about the story behind the performance. Yeah, you gotta understand how have people got to where they are if you wanna say something about the potential. And it's kind of back to that example with the sprinter that runs 10.2 versus the one that runs 10.6. I think the intelligent approach to that is to say, all right, if the guy that runs 10.6 has actually really, really not trained in a structured way and, and not having not practice hours. And, you know, if, if you kind of say, well, if I took him into my environment and he, I started training him probably, you know, He's probably have a lot more potential than the 10-2 guy who trained a lot and had a, a much more optimum training environment in the past. It's a lot about understanding context, I think. And again, you talk about diversity as well, like and that people like Steve Francis, Colin O'Connell, they looked for diversity in the people they recruited. So they you call it don't make your funnel too narrow, don't make your gate too narrow. And here you give the example of the Brazilian footballer Garincha. I think the diversity part is a really interesting one. We tend to, to be very, very narrow in the way we, we have, a, we have like, a, like a, a really narrow idea about that if we want to hire someone for this role, then he's got to have done the job before, before we have the courage to actually hire him. And I, I think if you understand what are the critical success factor, you can actually take a much wider view when you recruit. So I'll give an example. like. One of my good friends runs a service security company in Asia, got 900 employees there. And he's told me that he's kind of found his own little gold mine in hiring taxi drivers. You say, why would you hire taxi drivers when you run a service security company? Well, because he has really thought carefully about what are the critical success factors in a, working in a security, uh, service security company. And he believes that it's exactly the same thing as if you want to be a successful taxi driver. Because once you master the mechanical skills as a taxi driver, the critical success factor is, are you willing to go an extra mile for the customer? That's it. Exactly the same skill as you want in a service security company. So this this guy, he, he actually spends an hour every single day in a traffic jam because there's a lot of traffic in Kuala Lumpur, you know, in a taxi to and from work which is a great opportunity for making a job interview when the job interview is, is most effective, when the guy you're interviewing, interviewing doesn't know he's in a job interview because then you see real character. So he's hired basically 20, 30 taxi drivers to his company today uh, with great success. And it's not that I say that everyone has got to go out there and hire taxi drivers. But what I'm saying is that once you understand and you got clarity on the critical success factor in a job, then you can take a much wider view to try and you can find that skill in many more places that you initially thought. 
But you try and gotta go through, you gotta go through that process in order to realize what is the critical success factor and then take a more creative, wider look at the talent pool. This is where I think it's so aligned with the notion of innovation, because let's jump to Brazilian football for a second. And here you say the biggest mistake we make in Europe is that it's too well organized. And Brazilian footballers and Brazilian football is not a product of organized talent development, but the secret to it is spontaneous, unorganized football. And that is exactly what innovation is like. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's been this whole notion uh, about the 10,000 hour rule and 10,000 hours of deliberate practice as Anna Zerikson calls it. And I think it's a great message in many ways. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's that message that getting good at something is not a short sprint, it's a long marathon. And I like that. But when you look into a lot of the stories of these top performers, you know, what they've done at their early life is not really deliberate practice. It's, it's more play. Or there's some scientists that call it deliberate play. So this spontaneous, unorganized, uncoached, kind of activity where you i think the, you, you you try a lot of stuff you make mistakes you play with your friends and it's a great phase for experimentation but it's also a great way of falling in love with something you know they that's how they fall in love with the game i don't i don't think you fall in love with game, the game by going to organized practice twice a week and you know you you you, you got the initiative got to come from yourself and when building talent environments, that is a, that's a massively important point. I'm currently doing a TV documentary about a, an ice hockey club in Denmark that has produced more NHL players than any other small town in the world over the past 10 years. There's 50,000 people in this town. They produce five NHL players over the past 10 years. And it's quite incredible. I mean, there are more ice hockey referees in Toronto than ice hockey players in Denmark. And, and then there's this little town. So I went to visit some of these guys, the players in, in the US and Canada where they play today. And when I was in Canada, I went to Kingston University to, to meet a guy, a really inspiring scientist called Sean Coutte. And Sean uh, Coutte has done a study on what he calls uh, the birthplace effect. So he's found out that towns that have between 50,000 people to 100,000 people are much more effective at producing top athletes like towns of this size only accounts for less than two percent of the north american population but they produce 20 percent of all nhl and nba players so the environment in a small town seems to be more beneficial for developing top athletes and one of the key things i think is that you got access to unlimited training on your own so in a small town where these cultures kind of arise then you don't have the safety concerns you have in a big city going out in the street, playing soccer, you know, you go out and you play with your friends. And that kind of informal training is a huge part of the development of athletes in small towns and much bigger part than they tend to be in, in large cities. So what you mentioned about Brazilian football players is, is spot on and because they're one of the best examples of, of how informal play, informal training at an early age, is a lot more important than organized training that tends to be overcoached and overorganized. Yeah, and, and here, let's talk about this as well. When we're talking about Brazilian football players, and even you write extensively about Russian tennis players as well, and oftentimes the really high talent comes from poor backgrounds. And there's a major reason for why they succeed, because 
they have no choice. It's either die early in Brazil from gang warfare or drugs or else become a football player. And, and it's the way out of poverty. The way I look at motivation is that motivation is a very universal thing. Because you, if you want to achieve something extraordinary, you must be motivated. But at the same time, it's a very, uh, it's a very personal thing. Because what makes you tick is not necessarily what makes me tick. And you're right that in some of these places, you can argue that there's a huge drive or motivation to get away. You're part of an environment where you don't like in football or tennis or golf or whatever you do becomes a vehicle to get a better life. But I would say that if you want to look at some of those athletes that kind of keep performing year after year after year, you know, I don't think it's that motivation. I think it's 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 something a lot more intrinsic. I mean, why why does Roger Federer keep going? You know, when he is as successful as he is and have won all these titles and made all this money, why keep going? It's something inside him, and I think that's characteristics like real top athletes. You know, that that motivation of getting away from something I can only take you so far. You mentioned there the ten thousand hours and. This is the concept of getting the training in early. So clocking up hours early is absolutely essential. And I love the story you, you gave about Gabriel Haile Selassie and how he carried the books under his arm 10K twice a day. When we see something, some extraordinary performance, then often we naturally jump to the conclusion that, oh, it's about genetics or there must be something in the water there or something like that. But what you see is that there's often like an explanation which has nothing to do with those things. And it's a fact, I think, that a lot of top performers, they've trained a lot informally as well as formally from a quite early age. And Heidegger Baselassi, as you mentioned, the, maybe the best athlete ever, actually. But when I met him, he had the world record on the marathon. And he was kind of world famous for not just running so fast, but also doing it with a very strange running style. So the guy runs, runs with like kind of a crook left arm because for many years he ran 10K to school and 10K back again with his school bag on his left arm. So you know, it was almost like the, the, the best marathon runner that is still running around with his school books. And I think it was a good example of if you grew up in Kochi, Asala, in Ethiopia, small towns that produ have produced traditionally a lot of great middle and long distance runners, I mean, uh, running is kind of um, part of lifestyle. You know, you run to school, you don't take the bus, you don't, there's no, very few cars there, you know. So there's, there's just a, a part, part of life in, in, in these places. And I think he's a great example of that. So you almost get your practice hours in without being conscious of being, or doing it deliberately because this is just, this is just what we do here. Another great story is the story of Moses Kiptanui, and this story really shows the power of belief. In Kenya in general, I mean, there is this huge belief that we're the best runners in the world because they've seen evidence for it. They've seen, you know, it's, they've seen their neighbors, they've seen their cousins, they've seen their brothers and sisters going out there winning big competitions. And they all come from this little place called Iten in Kenya or Rift Valley, which is kind of the wider, wider area. Because you've seen example after example, it gives, creates that collective belief that we can't be beaten. I mean, when I went there, I remember we have some interesting conversations with people about like they, 
they literally, some of them literally never seen a white man beat a Kenyan. So they didn't think that was possible. And, you know, if you have that kind of belief, you, 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 you obviously, you know, it inspires you to train. It inspires you to, it, it creates a, it creates a belief that this, this is actually possible. And I think that's a massively important factor. There's no, there's no one in Kenya that runs with their heart rate monitors. You know, there was one, one guy who said to me, why do I need a heart rate monitor to tell me there's no more cash in the, uh, uh, in the bank? They just look at their neighbor and say, well, he won the world championship last year. So if he, if he can do it, why can't I? That belief, it comes from role models primarily. That's one of the other reasons why small towns often produce more top athletes than large cities. Because in a small town, you have proximity of role models. So they're just around you. They're not distant. So as I said, when I went to Iten in Kenya, this village that produced uh, top, top marathon runners, I remember I arrived there and I went for a jog 30 minutes in the morning. And it, within 30 minutes, I saw three world champions. And I mean, if you, have a, if, you, if you run 10 strides behind the guy who won the world championship last year, there's a good chance you think, I could probably do that myself one day. So the so proximity of role models gives you belief because he's just like me. So if he can do it, why can't I? At the same time, what it does is that it demystifies high performance. Because when role models are distant, you don't know what they did to be good. And it seems so superhuman what they're doing. So you automatically think, oh, but well, that's not, probably not possible for me. But when you uh, have role models close, it demystifies what it takes because you see this guy also get tired. Sometimes, you know, he doesn't train, you know, every day, but he trains a lot, you know, but it, you, you see the, that it's not, it's, it's not a, the, the, you know, no one is perfect. And it's, you, you start to think that, well, he's just like me. And if he can do it, why can't I? And, and that whole proximity of role models pieces is, is, I think probably, if not the, most important and at least one of the absolute most important factors in why small towns tend to produce be better at producing top athletes than large cities in that respect rasmus having the people around you who show you success so that whole idea of success breeds success but it's also the information they're exposed to so for example it's the roger bannister effect essentially that if you feed people only positive information on success information and not seeing a white man ever beat a Kenyan, that breeds this idea that it's not possible. And it'd be great if you'd share the Roger Bannister effect in that respect. This was the story about the Colm O'Connell, who is uh, maybe the most successful coach of uh, long distance runners in the history. And he had some really interesting ideas and um, he came to actually to uh, Kenyan in the 70s from Ireland as a geography teacher. And uh, he ended up as a, as a running coach there at something called St. Patrick's High School. And uh, when he was coaching the athletes, he was always talking about that don't give them too much information because if you give them too much information, it kind of make, makes them doubt. And, and one of the most important things for top athletes is, is self-belief. So, and I think this is, this is sometimes the mistake we do in the Western world is where we think uh, to become a top athlete, you, you got to have like a, this VO2 max, uh, this long capacity, uh, you, you have to have um, thin calves and this, you know, and then automatically you, you start thinking, oh, well, if I don't have that, it might, it might be difficult. And no one tells you that in Kenya. 
you know, in Kenya, you, you kind of just look, as I said, at your neighbor and you say, well, he won a big competition last year. If he can do it, why can't I? So, so there is this constant reinforcement of messages like you can probably do this too that are being feeded into, in, into these guys, young guys, naturally from the environment. And uh, I think that plays a big role as well. And also seeing those victories all the time and seeing the, it's how hard those people train around you brought to mind this concept that Tim Noakes came up about, the mind quits first. It reminds me of uh, an Arnold Schwarzenegger quote that whenever I'm in the gym and I start to fail, I always quote it to myself as the mind quits before the body. And this way of training is absolutely essential where you don't give in easily to your excuses. And you see examples of that again and again in when the Kenyans train. I mean, they, I often said, like, if you win the Tuesday morning training session in E10, you're probably the best marathon runner in the world, you know, <laughs> because you see all these guys pushing themselves, it kind of normalizes world-class behavior. You don't realize that what you do here is world-class behavior because this is just, it's just a normalization. This is how we do here, you know. You, the habits you see around you are world-class habits, but you don't realize because that's all you see. So you assume that's normal. In Kenya, there is this belief that it's the body that quits first, and you can push yourself a lot further than than you think you can. And that's what I mean. I mean, there is there. Is, I didn't see any. I saw one heart rate monitor for the three weeks I was there, and they used the strap of the heart rate monitor as your washing line to dry their with clothes. You know, there's no one who runs with a heart rate monitor there. They don't have a technology to tell them you're supposed to be tired now or you can't push yourself further. Uh, they just they just go beyond all the time. And I think that's uh, that's that's an, another one of their, their secrets. Another thing you discovered from your work visiting gold mines is that talent tends to get in the way of itself. I thought this was brilliant and the child prodigy problem. Yeah, sometimes it's not good to be too good too early because... If you had too much early success, uh, you easily get this sense of entitlement. First, you think, why work hard? I mean, I'm so talented. And uh, what also happens is that if people who've been praised for talent at an early age, they, I think they tend to become addicted to that perception of them being a top talent. And therefore, they are more unlikely to put themselves into situations where there's a chance they can fail. Because they don't see failing as a part of the learning process, but they see per failing as a personal defeat, you know, something that challenges this perception of them being a top talent. There's a lot of research on this with child prodigies and the people who start out as the best rarely end up as the best. That people have to learn to struggle. And when you're not the best, you kind of have to think about how you become the best. And that going through that process is, is beneficial for your long-term development. And then in the end, you overtake these guys that were very gifted from an early age. You mentioned the brilliant work of Jim Collins and this quote, I've come to see institutional decline like a stage disease. It's harder to detect, but easier to cure in the early stages, but easier to detect, but harder to cure in the later stages. And talent is exactly the same. I spent a lot of time working in football today, and I've seen plenty of examples of football players that were very gifted and had a lot of success early on and therefore made a lot of money at an early stage. And then when they start realizing that they need to change their mindset to get to the next level, they're just not able to do that because they've had so much success. They had so much money already that 
they're not prepared to pay the price for changing. And I think that sense of entitlement, Carol Dweck will call it a fixed mindset. I think you see that in um, in many businesses as well. I mean, there's a good quote, with great success comes great fear of losing it. Companies that become successful because they took risks then become successful and then they stop taking risks because it becomes a lot more about protecting what they have than it becomes about developing. And as you say, standing still does not pay. Here's one of the biggest dilemmas. So people listen to this who may have children or maybe a godparent or a mentor or a coach is the world has become very comfortable in Western worlds and some places it's not as we see that actually can be a driver for some sports people. And you talk about this big question, and this is a dilemma for me as a parent all the time, is balancing comfort with discomfort so your children learn. And you ask this question, how do we create hunger in paradise? I think it's economists, they often talk about that in family-owned companies, it's typically the third generation that fucks the whole thing up. Because the first generation obviously made it happen, and they put in the sweat and they paid the price for, for the success. The second generation, they know it's not always been like that because they've seen the change. Whereas the third generation, they're born into it. They just think this is always, it's always been like this and it's going to continue automatically to be like this forever. It's the same thing in a company. So one, one company I spend quite a bit of time with is Lego. Lego, you know, is a massively successful company today. Over the past few decades, they've pretty much gone from strength to strength. But 20 years ago, you know, the company almost went bankrupt. But people don't remember that. There's less than 2% of the employees today at Lego who were also there 20 years ago. So the collective memory about the times when it was really tough disappears over time. This is that third generation curse, so third generation paradox that somehow you got to, and there's a big challenge in successful organizations that have been successful for decades. You got to keep that story alive about it's not always been like this. You know, this is what it took to get here. And if we think that we can stop doing that and expect the same success, we're making a big mistake. I think this is, um, this is also in, a, in, the, in the larger context, as you mentioned, it's may- maybe a challenge, you know, psychologically that the collective memory in many Western societies is about the times when it was really tough have kind of disappeared. So we're all facing a challenge with that, I think. Parenting is a contentious issue that you mentioned. So oftentimes people criticize people who are seen to push their children or or perceived to push them. But you talk about this being an essential element. And it is. It's about involvement, being involved, showing more than just a passing interest. Yeah, I mean, there's this pacing. You can push and pace your, your kids too much. And we've seen some of the really bad examples in tennis with parents and Tennis dads actually go to extremes, and that is not good, I think. I also think because we've seen those stories, many parents ended up going in the complete opposite direction and say, we're not going to push at all. And I think that's wrong too. I mean, the, the way I look at it is like great metaphor is if you imagine like a fireplace, and if you put too much wood on, the fire goes out. It's not good. So definitely you can put too much wood on. You can push too much. But if you put too little wood on, you also get a problem with the fire. So you can do it too much, but you can also do it too little. And I think because we've seen these examples of parents doing too much, so we end up doing too little, many of us. Because pushing, sometimes if kids want to be good at something, it takes a lot of effort. It takes, they got to learn to struggle. And sometimes you need that push. You need someone who's, who's really engaged and helps you. 
And in many cases, that's kind of takes a hard work from the parents as well. It's a, it's a lot easier to say, well, I go to yoga on Wednesday and then just follow your passion. You know, passion is not just something that hits you like the lights and then you know what you're passionate about. Passion is also something that's developed. In many cases, I think actually it's persistence that create passion. You persist through struggle and then you get better at something. And when you get better at something, you start feeling very strongly for it. You start feeling passion. It's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, but there's this misconception that passion is something you're not going to work for. It's just like a light that hits you. And then you follow your passion for that on. But I think it takes hard work to feel passion for something. I love that, man. I think that's so important to realize that it's not about the child just discovering a passion. You have to put some work into that because it's almost like they learn that they're good at it and therefore they go, oh, I'm good at this. And I'll, then they put more time into it as well. Rasmus, last question for you. If you were stuck in a lift with somebody and you had one piece of advice to give them from your lessons from the goldmine effect, what would that be? Hmm. That's a good question. I think the kind of lesson that made the biggest impression on me was Stephen Francis' words that what you see is not necessarily what you get. I think that's such a key thing when you try and spot talent, which is one of the most important tasks for anyone who runs an organization, is that if you want to find that undervalued talent, you got to look beyond what you see. If you just look at what you see and expect that that's what you get, you're making a big mistake. And I learned a lot from that. This is something I try and adopt in whatever I do is I really try and evaluate the context in which the performance has been created when making any judgment about people's future potential. Beautiful. That's a lovely way to finish. And Rasmus, last thing is, I know you do a lot of keynotes. You have a brilliant TED Talk. Where can people reach you if they want to engage you for keynotes or for other consultancy work? I spend most of my time today running two football clubs, but I, I still do a little bit of the keynote speaking once in a while. And um, I got a like really simple website where people can watch some of the talks I made, rasmusankerson.com. So feel free to visit that. Author of The Goldmine Effect, Rasmus Ankerson. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you very much.